0: The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. So like I said, this is week three of our Advent series. I titled it, A People Prepared. Uh, stealing that phrase just from Luke chapter one about John the Baptist. Um, Ministry to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And we saw in week one that John's ministry was really uh, the coming of Malachi's prophecy in in chapters three and four of that last Old Testament book, that the day of the Lord was coming and the people of God were called to prepare. And that's what John was doing. Then his message was one of uh, repent and believe, repent and put your faith in Christ. And that was really... Uh, how he prepared the Lord's people for the day of the Lord, for Christ's second coming. Repent and believe and then bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. Last week, we heard not from John, but from Paul in 1 Thessalonians, focused in on chapter five, although we saw his teaching about the day of the Lord all over that letter, that a people prepared according to Paul in this letter are people who are not sleepwalking through life, They're not staggering around in drunkenness, giving themselves completely over to their fleshly desires. The people who are prepared are those who are awake, alert, aware, and sober, walking with the Lord now, even now, as they await his return. And this week, we'll hear from another voice in our canon of scripture, uh, the Apostle Peter. Be in the book of Second Peter, mainly chapter three, and what we're going to see—I'll just tell you right at the at the outset—that a people prepared, according to Peter, are a patient people, a patient people waiting on the Lord. Why does Peter talk about um, the people of God in this way? Well, life in general is full of waiting. Isn't that true? I don't have to take much time to convince you of this because we all have experience with waiting for something. Um, Whether it's the next season of your favorite show to release, uh, it's waiting in line at a theme park, whether you're in an engagement period and you're waiting for your wedding day, whether you're constructing your new house or hoping to buy a new one, um, whether you're waiting for your results from your COVID tests, or you're just waiting for 2020 to finally end. Amen. Uh, this week specifically, it brings back memories of, of my childhood and, and what waiting felt like for Christmas Day. Uh, usually, it wasn't a, a ton of waiting. I was a fairly sneaky child and would typically go in my mom's closet and find the, the, the gifts before they were wrapped, or even if they were wrapped, I would very subtly tear open a, a small corner and... And all the moms in this room are like, "Do you think my kids are doing that?" They are, um, just just not able to sleep, just anxiously anticipating what Christmas morning would be like. It's crazy to think, also, with life so full of waiting, how often the things that we wait for are over like that, right? If you're if you're at that theme park, you wait in line for a roller coaster and it's probably 60 seconds long. You wait for your show to release and you binge watch it in two days. Uh, You wait for your wedding day and the ceremony's over in about 20 minutes at most. Christmas morning, you got all these presents under under the tree and then five minutes later, it's just a pile of open wrapping paper or just shredded everywhere. And, uh, And if you, I pray that you don't hear this, but often we hear from our kids, do we have any more presents? Like no, I, I mean, there was like 20 of them under there. And then what do we do the next day as, as a kid, after the day after Christmas? We wake up and we think, 364 more days. We start waiting again, waiting again. So much of life is spent waiting. And I would argue that this is actually a, a good thing. It's, it's a good thing for us to have to wait as annoying as it can be these, these long seasons of waiting are important. Why? Because it's, it's within these seasons of waiting that we are actually preparing. Preparing to properly receive whatever it is we're waiting for. Just to take a couple of examples of, of what uh, we've been talking about to show the importance of waiting. Uh, people get married in Las Vegas quite often. And uh, most of the time this happens on a whim, right? Right? Uh, maybe sometimes alcohol is involved, or just uh, just uh, getting caught up in the moment. And if you look at the stats of how many of these on a whim Vegas weddings last, it's not very good, right? If the, the preparation time of waiting of the engagement would be helpful in these cases, or um, even giving a, a, a gift to a child, uh, if, if they get it instantly. It's, it's, it's never good. I remember my mom always telling me growing up that she got a brother and uh, or she has a brother. He still exists. And uh, my mom was, was given a car, but her brother worked really hard for a long time and saved up money and bought it. And she said it, it, was, it was tangible, the, the difference of how my mom treated the gift that she was given versus Her brother took very good care of it because the season of waiting, of preparing, of learning what the value of this gift that was coming would be prepared him to take care of it as as he got it. Life is full of waiting. Waiting is important. And the Christian life is full of waiting too. I've, I've been talking really about experiences that are common to all people, but Christians in particularly know um, this posture of waiting. And, and I would I would argue that Waiting has, in fact, been the fundamental posture of the Lord's people from the beginning. What we see in Genesis three fifteen, in speaking to the serpent, here's what the Lord says. He, being the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head, shall, future tense, and you shall bruise his heel. This, this promise is picked up again, this promise of crushing the serpent's head In Romans sixteen twenty, I mean, you got the beginning of the Bible and then towards the end of the Bible. Uh, Romans sixteen twenty, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Again, will soon. It's future tense. We're still waiting for this promise of Genesis three fifteen to be completely carried out. What what does this have to do with Christmas and Advent? There's a couple of passages actually in Luke's gospel that I think are really helpful. Um, Some that I read every year and I just think um, about how Advent, uh, when it's it's portrayed as a season of anticipation and waiting, it's so appropriate because Luke 2, starting in verse 25, there was a man in Jerusalem, his name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And luckily for Simeon, this is his story. The Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. He would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Simeon was waiting for the consolation of, of Israel. And, and that's not just a promise for him. That was a promise for all of God's people. But he had, uh, the, the Spirit had told Simeon that he would see something in particular before his death. And that was through the birth of Christ. And just a few verses later in Luke chapter 2, I'm not seeming this time but a prophetess Anna the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher she was advanced in years having lived with her husband 7 years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84 she did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day and coming up at the very hour she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem See, Jesus' presence, his first advent, comes at a time where the people of God have been anxiously awaiting, anticipating the birth of the Savior. And these, um, Simeon and Anna, are particularly mentioned in Luke's gospel as some of these people who are waiting. So the Christian life isn't just full of waiting, it is an actual call to wait, It is not just full of, yes, everybody's waiting. We have to wait. But it is an actual command to wait. Why do I say this? Well, later on in Luke's gospel, chapter 12, this is what Jesus teaches to his disciples. Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. So that... Wait so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the Master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. This passage is actually in context of the second coming of Christ, right? Blessed are the, the servants who actually are awake. Awaiting the coming of the master. The Christian life, the fundamental posture of the Christian life is one of waiting. The problem is what? We just aren't very good at it, right? We aren't very good at waiting. It's, it's difficult to wait, um, mainly for two reasons. Because we have become a culture of uh, immediacy. We want things when we want them. Um, this is the whole reason why everybody knows what Amazon Prime is, right? Two-day shipping, and sometimes that doesn't even seem like enough. Uh, this is the, the reason why we invented the microwave. This is why we have credit cards, because sometimes we just can't wait till we can save up the money. We, we, we need things now, right? We'll, we'll pay it off later. We aren't good at waiting. We want things now. But also, waiting is, is deeper than that, because it, imp- it implies dependence. Waiting implies dependence. The need for someone else to act on our behalf. Right. Think about those those verses we just read in Genesis 3.15 and Romans 16. Our waiting is a waiting on God. He shall bruise your head, the offspring, Jesus. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. God is the one bringing about the things that the Christian is waiting on. Our future is not in our own hands. We don't actually have control of our own schedules, and that's a good thing, because if you've seen the movie Click with Adam Sandler, we don't actually use our time very well. Waiting is the realization that we are on God's time. We are dependent. Bonhoeffer wrote about this, Bonhoeffer loved the Advent season and he wrote about it many times and I try to read just about all his Advent sermons um, every Christmas, but he, he writes this. Hope is not a melancholy fantasy which makes one's torture only greater, but it is life itself, the Christian life itself, one of hopeful waiting. Without our doing anything, this wonderful happening draws near. In the time of God, in the future of God, in God's coming on the earth. We know that we cannot go to God, but that God must go to us in inconceivable grace. Otherwise, we have waited in vain and would lose our life. And he says this, we can do nothing else but watch and wait. We aren't very good at waiting, but this is what the Christian life is about. And the Lord calls us to wait. So, if this is true, if, if, this what, if this is what the large portion of the Christian life is about, waiting, then it's worth asking the question How do we do this well? How do we wait well? I'm not talking about being a waiter or a wait, waitress, but waiting in your life. How do we do this well? What does a biblical, God honoring anticipation look like? How do we wait specifically as Christians? And to do that, I want to turn this morning to 2 Peter chapter three, starting in verse one. Let's read, Uh, we'll we'll end up going through verse 13, but for now, let's start in verses one to three. Peter writes, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring you up, stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. see, Peter, in this first verse of chapter three, he makes known one of his main purposes in writing this uh, second letter, right? Second Peter. Um, And just as he says in chapter one, verse 13, that he's stirring up your sincere mind, he says here that he is doing the same thing. How? By doing what? By reminding them. He stirs up their sincere mind by reminding them. But what is he reminding them to do? In verse one and two, remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So what, what, what does that mean? What is he talking about here? He, he's reminding them to remember the word of God. His teaching on the word of God in this epistle is actually pretty remarkable for such a short letter. It's definitely worth reading 2 Peter if you're interested in sharpening your doctrine of the word of God. And why do I say that? Well, just look at the end of this chapter in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting as they do the other scriptures. In this short two, two, three verses, Peter points to the letters of Paul and he, he may be even quoting directly Romans 2, 4 about the, the kindness of God lead, leading um, people to repentance, saying that you'll find the exact same teaching that Peter has here in Paul's letters. He says that Paul writes these things according to the wisdom given him. There's our doctrine of inspiration in the Scripture. And then says that some of these are, some, some among them are twisting the difficult teachings of Paul as they do other scriptures. Other scriptures. He sets Paul's writings and his own clearly in the category of inspired scripture. And then in the, the very first chapter of Second Peter, starting in verse 16, he says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, Peter was there with with James and John on the, the mountain when the Lord was transfigured before them. And, and the voice of God spoke, saying, "This is my beloved son." And yet, as insane of an, as an experience that probably was, he calls the prophetic word, the written word, more fully confirmed or more sure than, than God's voice, not saying it's better, but how it can conf- confirm through the fact that we can we can spread this word, right? And it wasn't a personal experience of just these three apostles. but This is, this is disseminating throughout the church. What, what Peter is saying here is this is no ordinary word and we would do well to pay attention to it while we wait. But he offers this um, warning. Not all will pay attention to it. Right, we saw this uh, last week in First Thessalonians five that some will either ignore or deny the second coming of Christ, saying peace and security. You know, don't don't worry about these things. Like everything's okay, just calm down. And here in 2 Peter three, uh, verse three that we just read, we see the same thing happening. He writes that scoffers will come, right? doing what scoffers do best, scoffing. Right. The question is, are they scoffing because they're scoffers or are they scoffers because they are scoffing? The, the chicken or the egg, which comes first? But it seems likely that scoffing here is an outworking of their nature. Because he says they are following their own sinful desires. Their own sinful nature has caused them to scoff at the coming of uh, the second coming of Christ. Christ. What what does this scoffing look like? Well, let's read verses four to seven. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. You know, he's referencing what happens in Genesis 6 with Noah. And although they aren't explicitly mentioned in Genesis 6, you have to think that there were probably some scoffers in Noah's day, right? Uh, what Genesis 6 does tell us is that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So that kind of sounds like the sinful desires of 2 Peter, which would probably lead to scoffing. And, but you can almost understand the scoffing in Noah's day, right? Think about it. A big boat because it's going to rain. And everybody's thinking rain? Never heard of it. What, what is this? Uh, that's just Noah. He's crazy. Again, we don't have people actually saying this in scripture, but you can imagine. But now in Second Peter, what we do have are people scoffing about the, the coming judgment of Christ. And, and this one's a little bit harder to understand because what Peter is saying is, guys, this has already happened before. It, it has already happened. The world has already been judged and cleansed with water once before. Why would you say that God cannot do it again? This time with fire. In order to deny this, you have to do what, what Peter says. Deliberately overlook. Deliberately overlook. They, they did that in Peter's day. And they continue to do so in, in, in our day. Even now. And, and I don't want to blow past the fact that we actually might have some instances of internal scoffing here this morning. It might be that some of us have been doing a little more scoffing lately given our circumstances. Maybe you said to yourself, Jesus, where are you? Where have your promises gone? We read this morning in our scripture reading um, the the psalmist and um, the prophet's often saying, how long? And, and I think I kind of pointed this out last week, that asking the question, how long, is um, you're joining the chorus of, of scriptural um, characters when we ask that. It's, it's a sense of longing, not a sense of questioning whether or not this is going to happen, but a sense of longing. And, and I want to say that we, we have biblical permission to do this. We have biblical permission to long, to groan with all of creation and ask the Lord, um, as, as we'll, we'll read later on, um, to come quickly. We have, But we do not have permission to question, to reject, to scoff, to deliberately overlook the prophetic word. We go back to those first couple of verses of this passage and we take Peter's advice. We Remember the word of God. So pay no attention to the scoffers. Pay no attention to the deceitful scoffing of your own heart. Remember the word. So this is the first point. There's only two this morning. We wait well. If that's our question, how do we wait well? We wait well by remembering the word of God. Specifically, Peter says, remember what the word has done in the past, He talks about the word forming creation and then the word deluging the creation and judgment. Remember what the word has done. Remember what the word is doing in the present. And what does he say? That is sustaining and upholding creation right now until the final day of judgment. And remember what the word will do in the future. And what he says in verse seven, the destruction of the ungodly. And the refining fire, bringing about the new heavens and a new earth. We wait well by remembering the word of God, and and I'll say just I think we're we're doing well on time. Uh, I I don't have this in my notes, but as I was um, thinking about it this week, and in particular in connection with Christmas, a lot of times preachers go through Isaiah seven to nine during the Christmas season, right? Because we have this historical situation where the people of God, um, specifically Judah and, and Jerusalem, they, uh, King, King Ahaz, um, they've survived attacks from Syria and Israel. Right? They have survived attacks, but they're hearing uh, word of this um, political alliance, this military alliance to come against them and to take them over and to conquer them. And uh, of course, King Ahaz is scared. And the the, the word of the Lord to King Ahaz through Isaiah is, do not fear them. Do not fear them. Um, And God sovereignly sees what's happening. He describes to Isaiah what's happening. Even in the the back uh, behind the door talks between Syria and Israel, God knows. He sovereignly sees it and he graciously reassures. In Isaiah 7, 7, um, the Lord says, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. And he even says this, within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. In other words, 65 years, Israel will be forgotten. Like they're, they're not going to be a people. You, you don't have to worry about them. But what happens is um, that the king does worry and he makes a political alliance with Assyria And Isaiah ends up prophesying the fact that, well, because you made this alliance with Assyria, you may survive this moment, but it's gonna come back to haunt you. And Assyria will actually completely take over, uh, all because you didn't trust. But there's this passage. uh, This this is the whole point. There's this whole passage in in chapter eight, verses one, uh, chapter eight, verses 11, Uh, Start, we'll we'll just start in verse 11. He says, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. So here's the picture. The people of Judah being terrified of what's going to happen, calling conspiracy, this is going to happen, and showing their fear and their dread of these people. And, and the, the words uh, of the Lord to Isaiah is, don't call conspiracy what they call conspiracy. Uh, it, it sounds so much like Second Peter, of, don't scoff at what they scoff at. And, and what is the, the response of Isaiah in, in verse 16? Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. In other words, what the Lord has said, bind it up and seal it. Hold it fast, Verse 17, I will wait, there's our word, for the Lord, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And listen to this. When they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? What do you do in the situation where everybody's saying, like, ask the Lord what's gonna happen? We don't know. We're waiting, we're scared, we're fearful. Verse 20 to the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to his word, it is because they have no dawn. In other words, what the Lord does is he gives the people his prophetic word. And in times of where they need reassurance because they're they're struggling and they're fearful. What does Isaiah say to do? Go to the teaching. Go to the testimony of our God's word. There you will find reassurance. As you wait, as he said in in Isaiah 8, I will wait upon the Lord. As you wait, turn to the word of God. But this second point and final point comes from the remaining verses in our passage. Going back to 2 Peter 3. Verse eight, verses eight and nine, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should desire should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I love how Peter takes his own advice from above to remember the word because he wants to reassure his readers that the lord is not late in his arrival. How does he do it? He turns to the prophetic word. That verse 8 of chapter 3 is a quotation from Psalm 90 chapter 4 or verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. He Peter turns to the inspired words of the psalmist to remember how the Lord reckons time differently than we do. When you're talking about the God who always has been and always will be, it makes perfect sense, right? What does time even mean to a being like our God? It's comparing the infinite to the finite, us. Us. And and, and during difficulty and suffering and and, and waiting and when there's scoffers around, we really feel our finitude. It's like during the holidays, how one day at your in-law's house can feel like a thousand years. Just kidding. I love spending the holidays with my mother-in-law. Love you, Miss Gina. How, How often do we say out loud or even just think to ourselves, This is taking forever, right? Peter reminds us that our forever is a blink of the eye to the Lord. And why does it help to remember that? Well, just as Peter says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. When we're waiting on someone, or maybe someone said they're gonna pick us up, and it's 30 minutes after that time, how do you feel? You feel like you're not a priority. You feel like you at worst, are completely forgotten. Peter is encouraging saints here that might feel this way. He's encouraging us by reminding us that the time that has passed since Christ's ascension is no indication at all that God has forgotten us. God isn't busy with other projects, just waiting for an opening in his schedule to get back to us. No, God is simply being Patient. Isn't that helpful to know that the Lord is waiting as well? We have a patient Savior. One who is giving ample time for what? For people to repent. He desires all to repent because those who don't repent will perish. Perish. His delay should not worry us. It should actually remind us of his goodness. His delay is for our good. How? It's for the good of your brother or your sister who is not a believer yet. His patience is for the good of your coworker that your coworker might repent and know the mercy of God in Christ. His delay is for the good of your old friend from high school that you run into occasionally and you know that she isn't doing so well. God's patience in returning is so that all should reach repentance. And since our God is a just God and he is a patient God, but he is just, he will not remain patient forever. If he did, sin and unrighteousness, wickedness and evil would persist forever. But the holiness of our God will not allow that to be the eternal state of his creation. And when he returns on the day of the Lord, as Peter says here, like a thief, but we talked about that last week, the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And in verse 10, it says the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. I don't want to dwell on this too long because 13 verses, you kind of have to pick a theme. You can't fully explain everything that's here. But this talk about works being exposed and people being judged according to their works is a theme throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. We have to understand this. It's just not what we're looking at for this passage this morning. But I will say this. For works to be exposed just means they're found out. They come to light. What is in darkness will not remain in darkness. It will come to light. And God will judge our works when our waiting is over. Um, I found this quote from Tom Schreiner, a New Testament scholar at Southern Seminary, uh, helpful. And he's actually talking about Revelation 20 and 21 because there's a quote kind of just like this about being judged according to their works. So those who are in the book of life mentioned in Revelation have performed works warranting inclusion, while those who are punished are those who have pursued and practiced evil. In other words, such works that we're judged on are not the basis for being found in the book of life, to being judged uh, righteously on the day of um, the Lord. But they constitute the necessary evidence of belonging to God. So God should be able, if you are truly spirit-filled, repentant your faith in Christ, your works, while it's going to be a mixed bag, should uh, give the necessary evidence of your faith in God. That, that's important. And that's all I really want to say about the, the word exposed because here, Peter's primary focus in this in this um, chapter is on the dissolution of creation, of the recreation of all things. Um, apparently, this is what the false prophets and the scoffers were having an issue with, right? And, and, and there's some question about this, and I'm sure you have questions. I have questions. What does it mean when the end of the world is portrayed in this fiery end and things will be burned up? And um, is this a complete destruction of the world and a replacement with a completely new one? Or is this more like restoration through a refiner's fire? The, the hint of this is the fact that this destruction has already been compared to Noah's destruction. What happened to Noah's destruction? Well, uh, according to Peter, it was a complete renewal of the world. But the world didn't, it wasn't a new world, right? It was was cleansed, it was washed, and the earth remained the same, but righteousness was restored, right? And and, in this same way, I, I think what Peter is saying is, there's going to be, just as you are made a new creation, but you still know your past. You still you know, are the same height. Like the, the physicality of your existence really didn't change, but you are a, a new creation, according to 2 Corinthians 5. This world will be a new creation. And some of things may look very, very similar. But as we're going to see in verses 11 to 13, it's a place in which righteousness dwells. So somehow the Lord, on the day of the Lord, is going to bring about righteousness here. So our last verse is 11 to 13. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So this is his last question. If all this is true, if the Lord is going to return for a final judgment, despite what the scoffers say, if all of creation will be totally remade, if all that is here today will be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? It's such a great question. And here's where I think we often go wrong in thinking about what waiting on the Lord means. If you remember this picture in Acts chapter one, we won't read it. I'll just, I'll just um, re- recount it for you. Uh, Jesus has, has risen and he's spending his 40 days on earth with the disciples and appearing to people and, and teaching again. And on the last of his 40 days of his on earth post-resurrection ministry, he says to his apostles, you know, uh, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses to the end of the earth. And then he's taken up to heaven. And wh- what do the disciples do? They just stand there looking into the heaven. Right? And these two angels appear and, and they say, uh, men of Galilee, w- w- why do you stand looking into heaven? Like, what are, you, what are you doing? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Here, we find out that waiting for the Lord and his return is not a stagnant anticipation. It is not a staring into the sky. Waiting doesn't mean doing nothing. And this is what Peter says in verse 11 of chapter three. We are to be living our lives in holiness and godliness. And what does holiness and godliness look like in a world that is destined for fire? That's the question. Since things on this earth will pass away, we are to be storing up Treasures in heaven. This is what Jesus says to his disciples in Acts 1. You'll be my witnesses to the end of the earth. In other words, they are to invest in eternity. So in our passage this morning, Peter doesn't say that the Lord is patient so that all should reach retirement. He doesn't say the Lord is patient, wishing that all should reach marriage and four kids. He doesn't say that all should reach 50,000 followers or subscribers. He says the Lord is patient to return, that all should reach repentance. So, if that's why the Lord is patient to return, what sort of life should we be living? Evangelistic ones. Calling, calling people to repentance and faith in the gospel. That's it. We don't exactly show that we're waiting on the Lord if all we're doing in in this life is trying to gain every worldly pleasure we can. That doesn't say we're awaiting Christ's good gifts. It says we're trying to beat him to the punch. That's not the picture of waiting. See, waiting, if we want to wait well, it is a remembering the word Is a trusting in the promises of God. It is taking advantage of his patience. This is how you wait well. I think about kids um, who will wake up on Christmas morning and um, not really have anything under the tree. And I think of how... um, Hopeless, that probably feels, right? Um, That's not our experience. As believers, sometimes we get impatient. Sometimes we get impatient. We're not very good at waiting. But I just want to remind you this morning of what a privilege it is to wait. Knowing that... uh, the Lord will make good on his promises. It's a privilege to wait. Would you pray with me? Lord God, you prepare us to be your people and in this passage this morning, you call us to be a patient people. Help us wait well. Help us take the time to to dwell on your word, to remember your, your promises, ones that have come through the holy prophets, ones that have come in through your apostles, take them to heart. Lord God, we believe that the day of the Lord is quickly approaching. And we, we echo what both Paul and John mention in Revelation. Come, Lord, quickly. We long for your return. But do not let us get caught waiting in stagnation but help us be busy awaiting your return by taking your gospel to the ends of the earth. You give us your spirit as a down payment, as a guarantee of your return. Help us uh, to cherish that. You have not left us alone in our waiting, but you have come to us. Thank you for that. In this Advent season, would you uh, convict us of where we have been impatient? Maybe we have been trying to create a heaven on earth just in our own backyard. Would you help us actually long for eternal treasures? It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit christcentralchurch.net.